0: This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Firmanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello and greetings. This week, we're talking about cities and nature. As always, I'll be adding a life world slant to the conversation focusing on how those who dwell in urban settings can engage with the teeming and vivid animal world right on their doorsteps. I felt that we needed to have an episode about cities here on the show because it's been estimated that by 2050, over two-thirds of the world's population will be living in urban areas. That statistic, for me, foretells a hungry escalation of urban spread. And the way I see it, we can either choose to integrate more nature into these mega-agglomerations, or we can start to say goodbye to generations of little humans who have had any contact with something other than the human species. That's to say, anything that is not human-made, synthetic, addictively technologized, or hyper-controlled. How do you think that anyone's imagination can roam wild and roam free and entangle with other intelligences if only high-rises and concrete rivers are in sight? if the world is increasingly digitized and screen-captured. And the sad part of this is that this nature deprivation systematically affects lower-income families, creating a damaging feedback loop that hits hardest at those who are already struggling to keep pace. And yet, cities are also beautiful. Cities are these wonderfully complex organisms. And they are also social incubators that provide dazzling connectivity and innovation due to the alchemic bumping up of so many human molecules. And so we must ask ourselves the questions, can cities be the best of both worlds? Can they provide both high social connectivity amongst human beings and amongst non-human beings? Can we design cities from the perspective and the life worlds of other species? And by the way, where does the city even begin? How can animals disrupt our associations of what cities are? Our first guest today, Gavin Van Horn, gets right into this topic. Gavin is the executive editor of the Center for Humans and Nature Press and is the author of two books, City Creatures, Animal Encounters in the Chicago Wilderness, and The Way of the Coyote, Shared Journeys in the Urban Wilds. His story teaches us a potent medicine for urban alienation, which involves honing our awareness to species like coyotes, robins, pollinators, and degraded urban forests. We talk about everyday intimacies, wild mutual gazes, the resplendence of pigeon feathers, and examples of mutual healing that occur when people repair urban lands and make nature whole. Then I speak with John Thara, a writer, curator, and professor who develops design agendas for ecological restoration, urban-rural reconnection, and multi-species environments. John curated the celebrated Doors of Perception conference for 20 years and was commissioner of the UK Social Innovation Biennale and the Urban Rural Expo in Shanghai. John's expertise lies in the realms of futures design and next economies, and in our chat, he shares compelling examples of urban-rural reconnection such as designers experimenting with microbial lives, the viral phenomenon of weed watching, celebrity farmers in China, and how placefulness is a doorway into caring. Together, their examples prove that there is indeed a middle path, and it has as much to do with honing certain perceptions and acuities than it is about smart urban design. He who learns, to see, as they say. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy these abbreviated shows, then you can tune in to the full unedited hours which can be found in all the usual places. We will start off today with Gavin Van Horn today on Life Worlds. Today we're going to talk about urban areas and how those people who live in cities who often feel like they're not close to nature are actually very close. To other than human ways of being. And you can have these animal encounters in what you've called the urban wilds, which I really love. I'd like to start by asking you, what brought you to this understanding that urban areas can be full of natural life? Like when was the first time that that became something that was so marked for you that you actually wrote books about it and have given so many talks about it? What was your urban initiation, I guess you would say, into that form of wilderness?
1: (laughs) That's a good question, because I certainly wasn't for the first, I'd say, three decades of my life, and I'm 47 now. uh, The urban environment or cities generally weren't places I thought of as being attractive in the sense of a natural wildness that they contained or exuded or that threaded its way through urban areas. Certainly, you can acknowledge that there are parks and that there are different green spaces, but those seemed relatively constrained and contained, you know, to me, and not, quote unquote, truly wild, domesticated, if you would. And so, you know, when I thought of going out and having the big, off-filled, sublime, or solitude-seeking, natural experience, urban areas weren't what would have popped to mind for me. And in some ways, that's just representative, I think, of a conventional narrative that is widespread in the United States and in other parts of the world, that urban areas are less than worthy of our attention when it comes to nature, when it comes to the life worlds of others, besides humans. That's something that was disrupted for me when I moved to the Chicago area, what I call and what some others call Chicago Land, representing more than just the city, but the surrounding Greenbelt forests and the uh, exurbs and other parts of Chicago. It's the footprint of Chicago is a large footprint <laughs> when it comes to landscape. But when I moved to Chicago, I knew that there were a lot of people there working on environmental issues. I, I knew that there's an organization there called Chicago Wilderness, which already puts those terms together in an interesting juxtaposition in a provocative way like wilderness Chicago what you know but at the time I arrived I think there were over 300 organizations that were under that umbrella of Chicago wilderness these were government non-government nonprofits and different social organizations and they were all gathered together around this vision of a Chicago region and the flourishing of the natural world and the flourishing of humans alongside those natural spaces That certainly preceded me and I knew about that, but it wasn't until I really had my feet on the ground that it came home to me in a very personal way. Because once I moved to that area, I needed to orient myself and I would do this with any area, rural, urban, whatever. But to me, it's a matter of getting to know my more than human kin or my other than human kin, the non-human neighbors that share any place with me. What are their stories? How do they move through this area? How have they adapted to and survived and even thrived in some cases in an urban environment like Chicago? So as I got to know those stories, it really opened up my mind to what a city can be and the possibilities for a city when it comes to being full of wildness, full of these other stories that stretch not only Around us in space, but stretch in time as well. You know, there's history there. There's a mythology, if you will, underneath the pavement of what that place is, bioregionally speaking. And those creatures, including human creatures, continue to carry on those stories. And so it became important for me to begin to physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, if you want, to weave my story into the story of those other stories that had their own trails through that landscape.
0: And so it sounds like it's something for you that's beyond parks and beyond the occasional tree that you have on the sidewalk. What is urban wildlife and nature for you then, now that you've seen these kind of this lattice of other lives overlaid over a city how would you describe what it even is to perceive nature in a city? Is it just noticing the squirrels around or is there something a little bit deeper to that?
1: Well, it can be. And maybe that's where it begins. I'm thinking of a woman I wrote about in the book, The Way of Coyote, her name's Sherry Williams. And for her, it began with pigeons. You know, pigeons are this disparaged bird. I mean, some people love them and some people develop relationships with them. But, you know, for city officials, they're a nuisance and they Poop everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Their familiarity sort of breeds contempt, you know. But aesthetically, I mean, if you take time to watch pigeons, the iridescence of their feathers, the way that they coo and behave with one another, I mean, they're fascinating. And so this woman, Sherry Williams, she became friends to the pigeons around her, which led her to other types of animals. And eventually she helped found with the help of Audubon, a migratory bird preserve in her very densely populated urban home of the Pullman neighborhood. And that's an example of someone for whom like, it doesn't start with the awe-inducing experience. It doesn't start with somehow having an epiphany. It starts with these everyday intimacies. That then build or can build our capacity for care, our capacity for extending our empathic imagination into other spaces that we're a part of and beginning to see not what is lacking, but what is there already and what could be there. That's the imaginative part. If we were to build in such a way as to accommodate species that are other than human.
0: I really like this phrase that you used in your book, the mutual gaze, and that cities are full of other eyes watching our behavior, not just human eyes. So yeah, it could be the eyes of a pigeon, but it could be all of these other forms of life that are gazing at us. And in a way, you had this beautiful part of of your book where you spoke about when you gaze into an eye of another creature, something deeply transcendent happens. And so we're moving in these cities and there's these other eyes and these other forms of life watching us and being watched. How do people look for wildness in a city? Like what are those practices of connection that people can cultivate?
1: Well, I guess I would start with what's familiar to most people. If you're going to give your care to another person, you're going to start with your presence and your openness to hearing from them. You know, you lean in, you show your interest, you allow them the space to speak or to engage with them. So the simple practice of presence, I think, is kind of fundamental to all of this. So when you stop moving through an urban landscape as though it's just backdrop or scenery to human activity, and you recognize, I'll go back to the word that you started us with, life world, that this is an exuberant tangle of life that is... Sometimes fighting for space, but sometimes is just thriving in between and above and below and everywhere. And so, as we become aware of that, that this is a living space, a lattice work, as you said, the green ways and blue ways, then we begin to familiarize ourselves with whether it's a local neighborhood or backyards a larger chunk of an urban area, the shoreline. There are plenty of places, but we began to recognize, for me, it was the Chicago River became a real magnet, a real draw for me because water tends to concentrate other forms of life. You know, we all need water. And so the birds that would come there, including great blue herons and black crowned night herons and the turtles, the amphibians, the frogs, the dragonflies, the minks, the beavers, all these different recovering, in some cases, species coming back to the river, coming back to this area that had been so polluted, but is now being cleansed, you know, the very lifeblood of the city in a way. So being drawn to those concentrated areas of life, I think you begin to understand where other animals are using and living and traveling through urban areas. So your senses become more attuned to where those intersections of presence can happen. But that said, I probably would say that that can happen anywhere. You know, an example of sitting on a balcony of an apartment with a potted plant, you know, you probably are going to get bees or butterflies visiting that plant. The soil itself contains a multitude of mites and biotic soil organisms of all different types sometimes not visible to the naked eye but again if it's a matter of being present there is wildness there as well from the micro to the macro
0: and you spoke about well earlier you spoke about pigeons um and I want to return to Sherry's story and in your book you speak about birds and how for you bird language was a really really fascinating doorway you wrote in your book about John Young I've done a workshop with him and It's so interesting how for most of our lives, if we're not trained in that, it's just birds singing. And then actually when you can get into birds, it's like they have all these different calls and they can indicate different things. And because birds are often very ubiquitous in cities, what was it about birds and yeah, you wrote about Robin in particular, but what is it about birds that can be helpful as that kind of doorway in?
1: Well, as you said, maybe for a lot of us, bird calls, bird song. It's maybe a pleasant thing in the backdrop of our lives that we don't necessarily tune into, but it was kind of revelatory for me to realize that there were all these different types of vocalizations, as they're sometimes called, that feels a little too objectifying to me. Um, I'll call it language, all these different syntaxes and grammars that were being used among birds and robins I use because they're so present uh, in most urban spaces, they're an easy bird to kind of tune into. They're not just there during fall or spring migration, they're there year round. And so they're a constant companion in urban environments. And so maybe an easy one to start getting to know. And like anything, the more you tune in, the more you start to understand subtleties and nuances of of body language, of their songs, of their calls when they're panicked or when they're aware of danger or when they're just doing what are called contact calls, you know, which are, you know, I'm over here. Okay, I'm over here. <laughs> I'm over here. Okay, I'm still here. So for me, that was really important because it, it kind of shattered the illusion that humans were the only ones that were speaking or the only ones that had a communicative language. You know, maybe I thought about birds as communicating with one another previously, but I didn't think that I could understand it, that that was somehow walled off from me. But once you start tuning in, it's certainly possible, and people like John Young are expert at it, you know, of knowing what's going on, not just among the birds, what they're communicating about the whole environment that they're in You can pick up a ton of information from what they're doing and what they're saying. So, I guess it was just another really important step for me or example for me of this is not confined to human beings' language. Or, you know, you mentioned eye to eye encounters before. You know, other animals regarding us is another way in which it shatters that illusion that we are somehow separate or apart or the only subjects in a world full of what we often think of as objects, you know, and no, there are subjects of a life all around us. Thomas Berry calls it a communion of subjects and having our gaze returned or hearing the languages of other species is a reminder that we're not alone, that we are not a species that is apart from other species stories, that we're not the only ones telling stories about them, that they're also telling stories to each other about us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I had a very funny experience happen to me a while ago. I was hiking in the woods, but then I was just sitting quietly and there was a lot of bird calls happening and bird communication. And then I heard these two other human hikers coming along and I heard their like conversation. And I'd been so tuned into the birds that when I heard the human speaking, and it was my language, it was English, but it just sounded like two animals communicating to each other in the way that we can imagine how animals do. And all of a sudden it was like, I was a bird and I was hearing these two humans babbling. And I'm like, oh my God, this is what humans sound like. Or, you know, when you're in an airport and there's so much noise that you can't make out any individual thing and you kind of rise above it. And you're like, oh, this is the constant babble that other animals are hearing from us. And so when I tune into bird language, especially in a city, I always try and think like, well, this is what they sound like to us, but what do we sound like to them? You know? And yeah. And it becomes kind of trippy because you're like, gosh, we don't it doesn't actually sound that good. <laughs> you know, that
1: <laughs> I know exactly what you mean because oftentimes we're really loud, right? We're walking along, we're talking really loud, we're stomping through. And that's why I picked that line, from John Young's work of soften your presence in the world if you want to learn what others are saying. And that works with birds, but it's also kind of a good philosophical foundation, if you will. (laughs) Like, what if our cultures soften their presence in the world? Cities would look a lot different. I mean, talk about noise, pollution, and what would it look like to soften our presence? And that allows the space for others to exist.
0: I'd love to pick off on this thing that you said earlier, thinking as a bee. Uh, Because one of the provocations of this podcast is, can we see through the eyes of other creatures? Can we become more like them? Or just that sort of empathy, co-inhabiting another life world of someone else, aside from just being our own human self? Because we're impoverished, I think, when we don't know... Mm the life of other creatures. It's just like an echo chamber and a mirror all at once. You know, it just sounds pretty boring in my opinion. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you have a lot of teachers in your books. You know, you have the robin, the blackbird, books, papers, writings. You have the book, the blackbird, beavers, robins, herons, obviously the coyote, who we haven't spoken about yet, voles. And you write, you know, at least one piece of what I am advocating here is that other animals can help us think and behave differently. So we might not be able to have access to animal minds, but we do have imagination and the power of observation. So tease that out a little bit. Can we think like other animals or how can we get close to seeing the world through their eyes?
1: Yeah. So I think sometimes the scales have tipped too far, in my opinion, to this fear of anthropomorphism. And there's good reason to be hesitant about attributing other human traits to non-human animals, which is what I mean when I say anthropomorphism or anthropomorphizing, because we don't want to reduce other animals. We don't want to constrain their own ways of perceiving the world. You know, think about a bee seeing an ultraviolet spectrum. Think about a hawk being able to see pinpoint precision two miles away, see a mouse. Think about the speed of a peregrine falcon through the air. Think about all the sort of attributes that other animals have, perceptual attributes that we do not. And so you don't want to say, oh, that bird is dressed in pants and a vest and an ascot. You don't want to reduce them or make them into comic book characters. I mean, unless you're writing a comic and that's the understood context. But what I mean to say is you don't want to infantilize or trivialize. Their lives. At the same time, I'm a strong advocate in trying to, as best we can, with the limited faculties that we have, understand what other animals are doing, what they're trying to communicate to us. And in part, that's made completely possible by the fact that a lot of our behaviors, especially with other mammals, are mutually intelligible. We recognize when another animal feels pain, when they feel joy, when they are playful. We understand those behaviors. And so that's not a big leap. Now, pushing beyond that, you know, I think it also is helpful to follow good old Aldo Leopold's advice and try to think like a mountain. How do we think like a landscape? How do we think like a river? How do we imagine ourselves into these other types of being, which would expand our empathic imaginations? One of the great gifts that we have as human beings is the capacity for empathy, the capacity to step into the shoes of others
0: that was Gavin Van Horn there was one thing that Gavin said that particularly struck a chord with me when he said that nature connection doesn't have to start with being in awe or somehow having some great epiphany it can start with these small everyday intimacies even in cities that then help build our capacity for care and imagination I think that is a wonderful wonderful invitation now, I am delighted to introduce us to John Thacra, writer, curator, and designer, speaking to us from rural France, where he's been camping out during the pandemic. John's website is linked in the show notes and is a treasure chest of resources on everything you can imagine relating to design and ecology and education. So do check that out after the show. Here's John.
2: So I did a workshop recently with some 26 designers in Italy. Milan Polytechnic, supposing that more biodiversity is good for health as a starting point, and in particular microbial diversity, what actions could you as designers take to make that possible? And I was expecting this to be a hard slog, to be honest with you, Alexa. I I was invited to challenge them But it was amazing. It was just pushing at an open door. And these were like not ecological designers. These were product designers with a technology background and inclination. But they just went off and did the most amazing group of quick projects on everything from how could one listen to the condition of a tree in a city non-invasively, how could you experience the sounds of a tree? Uh, Which is a fantastic question. But because these were designers, they went off found all sorts of technology to sample the sounds of of a tree, found ways to turn those sounds into things you could hear on your phone, found ways to turn the sounds into musical information so that it might have a musical quality, found ways to turn those sounds of trees into playlists. So within a very short period of time, they'd concocted, this is one group, a way to connect with trees through sound. Another group hacked a smartphone and turned it into a kind of microscope by attaching microscopes physically to this phone. Then they would go and take samples of bits of dirt or gunge in the city, use that information, find AI programs to analyze what the pictures were telling them about microbial life in this little tiny bit of water, And then the AI would give them information about the different forms of bacteria that were present and what this meant. And they then made that kind of information to a kind of Pokemon Go card game so that you could collect bacteria in your phone that you had sampled physically with your little testing kit. Things like that. And it was just wonderful. And I had expected none of this, to be honest. How quickly they just got the idea of connecting with life not with some exotic purpose in mind, but just for itself. And I just think it confirmed my general view that people are waiting for it and looking for it and don't need to be encouraged. So we had this fantastic period of people finding magical ways to connect with invisible life, using modern tools, and not with a big, heavy agenda about fixing the city or making it healthy, but just as a form of exploration for its own sake. I mean, I'll give you an example. The whole phenomenon of weed watching during the pandemic.
0: I haven't heard of that.
2: It's quite extraordinary (laughs) how many people have gained comfort from just being locked in their apartment. And this is a good example of where it's not just about going to a national park and hiking through some wilderness. Somebody stuck in an urban tower block during the lockdown would discover there was a weed growing on their balcony on the 10th floor, which they'd never even noticed before, or they might have just idly thrown it away. And then there's there's dozens of blogs and websites about weed watching. And that is a classic example of reconnecting with nature, not through some act of brilliance or being very wise, but just because somebody told you you had to stay in your flat for several weeks. And then you sit there, and then you notice this weed. It's quite magical, I must say. Some of them are like ecologists or scientists, but most people not down the street from where I live, and now I live in a small town in France, but a woman runs a small shop, and I noticed some writing on her doorstep of her shop, and there's a little plant growing out of the lintel, and it says in French, let me grow, and she's written, let me grow in white marker pen, just on the side of the thing, to stop people cleaning up her doorstep. She's not a kind of radical ecologist, she's running a shop in a small town, but she is clearly uh, as now do many people say, well, maybe we should welcome these weeds back into the cities and towns rather than regard them as a signal of disorder or untidiness. And those little tiny examples are what actually give me the most joy on a day-to-day basis.
0: When we're speaking with designers or technologists or those who practice sustainability in, inside of corporations or whatever it may be, that first person embodied relationship that we were speaking about earlier seems essential because you can't possibly design a policy or a a financial mechanism or an intervention for something that you personally are so distanced from. And that's something that causes me a little bit of concern. Are people who are defining and and, and kind of sculpting our worlds, but have only a very close first person relationship with the human, maybe more urban side of that. So how do we start to bridge that divide and, and give people a more holistic sense of what they're designing for and for whom? Huh. <laughs> I, mean, I think
2: this is a pretty crucial question. So, and it's not just designers, it's, it's basically the people who run the modern world are, as a sort of group of millions of people just do not have very frequent embodied connections with living things, or maybe they do, but they don't necessarily notice. I'll give you an example. I just read this recent, this week about one of the top global consulting companies, has started a master's degree in sustainability for its 320,000 employees. And they've done this because 75% of their people, of this gigantic global consulting firm, have expressed a very clear wish to do work that contributes to social and ecological issues and isn't just about whatever other issues their work is filled with. And so I'm guessing that this this course that they're being offered that's new is in part a response to keep people in the company and attract people to come and work for them who have this need but don't otherwise find it in their day-to-day life as a consultant. But I have to say, when you read the agenda of this course and when you look at the kind of program of this sustainability masters for 300,000 consultants, there's nothing in it at all about embodied experience. It's all about the ideas and the words and the the apparatus of sustainability as something which big companies feel they have to do it. They don't know how to do it, so they hire a consulting company to help them do it. But it's all basically a recycling of very just of words and the search for metrics and the search for definitions and the search for evidence that they're doing something about it. But the it doesn't become real, not for me. I mean, of course, I'm not working there, but I strongly suspect they're not going to make them happier employees or feeling more satisfied as a result of doing this course but it does raise the fundamental question of if you have 70% of the population of the world living in cities let alone the ones living in corporate worlds under what circumstances would they have these lived experiences that would begin to get them to make different decisions and take different actions and I've had this conversation. Some people say, you're just talking about a few hippies or a few rich whole food customers or a few people who go on eco vacations to Costa Rica. And and that's true. But if you frame it as, we must have a very expensive experience called connecting to nature, then we're going to remain stuck. We have to be a bit more clever and artful about suggesting, for example, to somebody working in a skyscraper in London for a big consulting firm, we have to be clever about giving them little ways out to be connecting with nature and have lived experiences that isn't a full frontal command and control thing. But I don't know, we just have to crack the carapace that they're stuck in somehow.
0: Crack the carapace. I like that. How would you design that course? How would you take on that challenge? What would you have them do?
2: Well, this is a good question because as you know, I thought we need a course that people can go on. And lots of Some people are now offering courses called Understand Systems, Understand Natural Living Systems, and so on. And I've been involved in a few myself. I do a course in Sweden every summer called Back to the Land. And I have to say that although me and my fellow teachers have spent a lot of time thinking about what the program of this course should be, the actual experience that is valuable to people is leaving the city and going and staying in a small village in the middle of Sweden for a week. That is the value of the experience. Now, one of my colleagues is a very expert facilitator. Another one is a very expert teacher of design in terms of physicality and how things work. So you have the presence in that particular group of people who are, have expert knowledge and skills. But if we weren't all physically there, I don't think it would be such a valuable experience. And so then the question is, how did we all come to be there? And this is where, you know, I must say, i become a bit more optimistic because we didn't do heavy marketing or have to drag people there. We said, here, we'll be in this small hamlet for a week. Come and join us. You don't have to pay, in this case, Sweden being a rich, happy country like that. Then, yeah, people just come. They're very keen to come. So it's creating opportunities, creating spaces. So people in the world of facilitation called holding space. So I think there's a design activity called... Creating the conditions for people to meet with each other in a good situation. And I think that is not, frankly, so easy all the time. But if we create the spaces and the opportunities, I think people will come. It's not about a course in terms of here is the sort of five chapters that you have to learn and become expert in. It's about creating circumstances and situations in which people can then meet and make their own sense.
0: So, in the example of that, you know, consultancy with, you know, what could potentially be millions of people going through it, would you advocate for a a module whereby they all get together in some place and then engaged in place-based learning activities? And if so, what might some of those activities be? Maybe you could describe some of the things that would happen while they're all together.
2: I actually would advocate for that, but it's not about just going and meeting in a forest and feeling green. I think that people should be given tasks to do, partly because it's otherwise very disorienting, you know, And these tasks should be productive tasks, beneficial to the place. So, for example, some friends of mine started the ecosystem restoration camp movement it's now become, where you could go for anything from a week to a, several weeks and just physically help somebody restore some land. And you could do this as a rank amateur or somebody with some special skills. But that has clearly answered a need because it's very growing tremendously fast. And there you have experts at the site. It could be a river or a forest or a farm or a community. It could even be an urban situation. And somebody who with proper knowledge of the place said, yeah, we're going to clear out this polluted soil from this building. And at the end of that, we will then grow some food in it or we will whatever, we'll do some things in it. Very right. simple, practical, manual work. But in the process of doing that, you get to learn about the history of that little bit of land. Why is that building there? Why did the earth get poisoned? Is it possible to clean up the soil using plants, or do you need to use other techniques? But the point is, you have a real place, and you go there for a week or more, and when you leave, that place is in a better shape. This is a guy called John Yu, who uh, started this movement, and I just think it answers the question of don't just go and feel good. You ought to do good. We all feel that. We ought to do good for a place. And if somebody can organize for that to happen, so much the better. I'll tell you an example. If you go down freeways in America and you see this stretch is sponsored by, and then there's a small company like a hamburger bar or a legal office is in some way sponsored the maintenance of that bit of the freeway. And I think to speak of this big consulting company, why don't they sponsor you know, or be associated or partner with ecosystem restoration sites around the world where they have people. And then their people can go and work on these sites and physically help to restore them, learn about it at the same time. And I think that would be a very desirable thing for a big employer to offer, you know, physical opportunities to physically make land healthier in a place. Nothing complicated and not requiring very virtuous people, but just, you know, two days a month, a weekend a month, I don't know what it would be. If your personal contribution, as a result of which that bit of nature got healthier, yeah, I don't see how you could lose doing that.
0: I think that's a brilliant idea. I hope that they listen to this. And I'm curious if you have examples, especially urban activities, that are examples of these little hopeful sparks.
2: There's people called the Sugi Project that around the world help local communities plant diverse micro forests, often in very unpromising, wrong side of the tracks type locations. Inspired by a a wonderful Japanese guy called Miyawaki, discovered that actually it's not so hard to plant a forest, but you just need a bit of expertise, some land. You need a conversation with a local municipality. Actually, you need lots of things. There's an organizational task, but if some of those organizational tasks could be taken care of, it is simply not hard to get local people of all walks of life, so to speak, to come and take part. And then you get the most fantastic richness when people from different cultures in a city come along and start discussing what could be in their microforest, you know, an edible microforest. So that's a good example. All the 10 million aspects of urban food is another example of where, when I started out writing about urban farming and urban food, it was, yeah, frankly, again, it was a sort of rich person's hobby, you know, if you kind of had the time to spend, it was kind of cool in the northern, you know, in Europe, where I am. And then in the whole of the global south, as I discovered, best 900 million people grow food because they need to and because they always have done. And there was these two worlds with very little knowledge of each other. But that's all changed in the last five years as well. So that so many cities are now making space for people from all walks of life to grow food, not just because it grows calories, but because they recognize how much positive benefit there is to communities growing food, mixing with each other, sharing knowledge, sharing tools, sharing land, whatever. And so all sorts of cities that thought the whole thing was an irritating, rich, hipster sort of fad, it's now becoming mainstream really rather quickly. And that's where you don't have to give people lectures about biodiversity or life, you just say, yeah, do you want to be part of growing food? Yes, I can, but there's all these practical obstacles. That's when the city comes and city fathers, city municipal authorities make things possible now that they previously would have thought were a hassle.
0: I'm sure that the pandemic also accelerated that, and I think there's a lot of figures on there to see the increase in urban farming and people growing their own little plots of food. I'm curious about the other divide, not just the one that you mentioned between people who are in the global south growing their own food and people in other cities who aren't used to it. But you've done a lot of work in China in bridging the urban-rural divides and how those areas are disconnected. Maybe you could speak a little bit to those series of projects and how you try to bridge those worlds.
2: Uh, I had the great good fortune to be asked to go to Tongji University in Shanghai and look at the question of urban-rural reconnection which I'd written about a bit, also bioregions and those sorts of subjects, which, like many other of these words, they sound nice, but it's not clear what they mean in practice. So I went to China with a rather specific brief to collect examples of new forms of urban-rural reconnection that were either emerging from the passage of time in a vast and very complex country, or were initiatives from innovative companies and individuals. And so at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic, I did indeed do a big show called Urban Rural, where we had about 100 of these projects came together. And it was just yet another happy making experience is that once you go and look, lo and behold, there's so many amazing things going on, which are kind of below the radar or have a different name attached to them that people in Europe and in the United States have been talking about as would be nice for a long time. So a lot of it comes back to food. For example, how can we make it possible for small farmers or farmers generally to talk directly to the people that eat their food rather than going through all these layers of supermarkets and industrial food processing and packaging, et cetera. And I've been advocating for that for years. And then I go to China and lo and behold, basically the kind of Alibabas of this world have proactively, in their case, done what they call farmer live streaming, which they enable a small farmer with a phone and about a few days of training to communicate directly to the people in the big city who buy their food, whether it's mangoes or uh, rice or whatever. And it's a combination of a kind of Experiment by the technology company or the distribution company with an unmet need. It just exploded. So, 300,000 farmers are now talking on a regular basis with the people in their city. There's a guy who's quite become a celebrity who basically looks after hens and has eggs and hens. And he's become a celebrity for the entertaining way that he describes the day on the life of his hen farm. And there's funny mango farmers and tea. So, there's the serious foodie side of it where they go into, frankly, exotic detail about the nuances of a little tea leaf but most of it's about daily life on the farms and how interesting it is to city people and the reason that's happening in china that it's not really still happening in europe so much is that it's a more of a mass thing that farms and food are genuinely a priority for the chinese authorities because it's you know there's 300 million small farmers of one kind or another in china they're a big chunk of the population and it's not about just being You know, enlightened, but they are a big political force. So the government has to look after the interests of the rural economies. And therefore it does. And then they have, I'm not wishing to say it's, you know, marvelous, but that whole communication gap that we complain about, you know, in the West between the land and the city, yeah, it's breaking down a lot. And the consequences are that the guys with the mangoes who start by telling stories into their phone about their mango crop then become experts who can have visitors go to the farm. You start to multiply the different forms of economic activity, you know, food tours, cooking visits, ecological visits. And so the things that people like myself would write to-do lists on are already happening because some telco said, let's do live streaming. So that's why I think it's not about sitting in a studio, dreaming up exotic ideas. It's about being explorers and if you get out of the house, so to speak, or out of your studio and into the world, there are so many amazing things happening that are admirable that could be done better with, for example, the attention of a designer or all sorts of other forms of knowledge that we have.
0: I think what's so interesting and compelling about that example is, you know, going back to what you are sharing earlier about how the internet and technology in its earlier stages was asking, well, how can we be in service to this movement Without the Alibabas and without that connectivity, those superstar mango farmers, and I know uh, an abuela in a Mexican village that has like, I don't know how many millions of followers, and every day she's just cooking her mole, kind of like this slow TV. Without the role of technologists and designers in creating those systems that can bridge those divides, that may not have ever happened. And so I think it is a really compelling invitation for those who work in those spaces to say, okay, how can your knowledge and your skills be used? to bring these worlds closer together. And I just think it's an absolutely wonderful invitation. Something that I ask a lot on this podcast, and as you know, the title Life Worlds is about this notion in the way that I'm interpreting it, that all of the species and organisms that we share the planet with have their own world that they live inside of, their own experience of the planet. And as human beings, we could try often a lot better to put ourselves in their shoes and understand, okay, can we design for you? Can we understand you better in order to live in greater harmony and coherence for everyone? I think that that kind of approach can never be amiss. Is that something that in your own practice you've attempted to do or experimented with to look at another organism or form of life and develop some kind of relationship where it's either taught you something or you've thought, okay, we're going to design for something that is more than human? I've been
2: fascinated by by, for example, slime molds, called the mycorrhizal networks of trees, mainly because beautiful communicators from the words of science and ecology have drawn my attention to it. But I have to say, I can't really claim to have come up with some very brilliant design action as a result of it, except what I was saying earlier, that so much of what we can do to help living systems flourish is to kind of not do very much. You know, let's stand back and watch. And I think that this notion of standing back and observing how nature operates is surprisingly uh, instructive because nature operates on an infinity of very interesting and cool ways, but many of them are conjunctural. Nature operates on what needs to be done now to live or to reproduce. And, you know, a slime mold is a good example of something which doesn't have strategies and blueprints and design educations, but is tremendously effective at finding food and occupying a new context that might be beneficial for itself uh, without having a brain or a design mind or anything or design thinking. But I think the trick is to just be inspired and learn how incredibly resourceful nature is without feeling some kind of compulsion to turn that into a design action. Frankly, my difficulty was what happened to the biomimicry movement. It's this basic human need to make things is very powerful. And I think the need to make things is not necessarily always consistent with leaving an ecosystem healthier. So if you go in and say, look at all this bamboo, we can make so many things with bamboo. And people have duly made lots of things with bamboo. But I just think we're in a transition phase from learning about the diversity and the richness of natural processes and natural ecosystems to get realizing that we humans can actually be more like nature and adapt to our context in a more short-term way, rather than turning natural knowledge into product lines. So I don't know if you know about the bioeconomy, for example, is basically at the moment designers and technologists and scientists saying, look at this amazing mushroom and this is a true story from my friends in Tellier Luma. We could replace all the sound insulation in Mercedes cars with mycelial growth, Great. and therefore we'd have bio cars. And my attitude to that is well, no, we wouldn't, because maybe we don't need cars in the first place. We're in, I think, a transition called bioeconomy is reproducing industrial processes that consume, I don't know, steel and energy and iron foundries and coal to processes which are driven by natural things or more natural things, but it's still within an industrial mindset, you know, production, efficiency, cost, reproducibility. So it's a kind of transition which I think we need to speed up a bit towards not every place needs to be built on or we don't need to build things and make things to meet all our needs. We can meet our needs in other ways than making things.
0: That's such a critical point, and I think often we would consume or build less if we were more satisfied in other aspects of our lives. And that's where a lot of what we talked about today is also where those needs get filled, the connection with others, the being in the land, the participating in meaningful activities. And it doesn't have to just be getting the greenest car that's out there on the market, because undeniably, that's still necessarily not a very green activity.
2: But this is a great point, and you put it beautifully, learning to live with less actually can be a design-intense activity. Uh, but it doesn't lead to the production of goods or, for that matter, pay for services. So that what is real for life that we're going to have in the future is not the same as real for the economy that we have at the moment, which requires you know, products and services that can be exchanged for money. So that's another one of the transitions we're in is away from, indeed, meeting our needs through things that we pay for. But that is an inconvenient transition if you're running a big company, I accept that. But how will we get them out of that, I don't know, but they have to move on.
0: That's an excellent point. Thank you so much for this wealth of knowledge that you share and also for your time. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation.
2: It's been absolutely wonderful, Alexa. Thank you for inviting me and I look forward to hearing the future episodes.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time. It will be our final episode of this series. I cannot believe it's gone by so fast. And we will hone in on wilderness rights and tracking, how nature can be a mentor. As per our tradition on the show, we will end with a fun fact to bring you into a rather unexpected life world. Today we spoke about coyotes. And so after a little bit of digging, I learned that badgers and coyotes love to combine their skills to hunt together. They've been caught on camera in the prairies, kneeling in waist-high tufted grass, waiting for the next chase. This unusual relationship is mutualistic because each one has a skill that the other one needs. The coyote can run and pounce much faster than the badger, but when the prey scurries underground into its burrow system, it is the badger can dig with its nimble paws and claws to get it out pretty nifty interspecies teamwork i say so that's it for me today i would love to hear from you so do reach out on the lifeworld.earth website where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large subscribe to the email list and i will see you back here soon